0: 20s, I was going to a church, I started attending a church that played this music that I just did not like, called hymns, you know, and I would go to this church, and I I didn't grow up in a church, I didn't grow up with hymns, so I didn't appreciate them, and I went to this church, and I I loved it because it was just a great community, the teaching was rich, but they sang hymns, and I was like, I don't know any of these songs, there's no drummer, there's no beat to get into, all I can do is sit here and listen and read the lyrics, You know what? I found that they were awesome. And ever since then, ever since then, I've, my appreciation for hymns have grown, my, and, I, and I've become a lyrical connoisseur of music, and, and so much so that, to me, a good song is not dependent on whether or not it's got a good backbeat or it's on the downbeat or a 2-4 or whatever, or a killer solo. What makes a great song is how it feeds my soul. It helps to have good music, but I've always listened to the lyrics, and I've always been doing so. Put that slide up there, eh? So, we were singing this song, and I mean, nobody talks this way anymore, and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow. If I ever love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I mean, so, so my wife and I were, were kind of laughing, trying to interpret this, this slide as we were singing it. But how amazing this truth we sing. So, so my interpretation, and I think I'm actually right, is this person saying, when I am in a cold sweat, I'm about to die. I am still loving you at that moment, right? I mean, how amazing when the death dew lies cold on my brow. If I ever love Jesus, it's now. That's how powerful the gospel is. So, with that, what I want to do is start this morning. You can take the slide down, eh? So, what I want to start this morning is to, because I've been talking about lyrics, is to recite some lyrics from a song that uh, I know all of you know, and let me just read them to you now, and I'll show you the very dynamic I'm talking about of how powerful this song is to me. So, let's see if the, the, we're ready to go. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friends, I mean, just just think about what that that verse is. Verse 1, just in that one verse, we have the, the indiscriminate power of the gospel, not indiscriminate in the sense that it's irresponsible, but indiscriminate in that it does not discriminate. It is open to all, to anyone, even if you are a wretch, especially so if you are a wretch. In that verse, we have the existential power of the gospel, purpose, meaning, direction, future, clarity, all the things without which we are simply lost. And the things that make life have traction, the morals, the intellectual, the emotional, the spiritual, all there. Verse 2… The paradox of the gospel. And this, friends, is just so, so clear. We're seeing this in our world awash with anxiety and fear. The psychological literature is just filled with this, although they don't know what the truth is. The paradox of the gospel is that until I know who, what, and how to truly fear, I will fear everything. But when I know who, what, and how to fear, I will fear nothing. That's what that verse is saying. Uh, yeah, it's also saying the preciousness of the gospel, that when I understand this grace, this amazing grace, this is what I understand life. Verse 3, we see the promise of the gospel, goodness, hope, protection, strength to endure. And finally, the permanence of and power of the gospel. The pressures of temporal existence are no more. We have all the time we need. We have all the time we could want. Ten millennia can come and go, and the clock hasn't even begun. And friends, my my older friends, you saints, I'm sure you can love this, that we will eternally be brilliant and bright and new as the sun. We know what the orbit of our lives will be. It will be, as it says, God's praise, God's glory. This old hymn written by an old Anglican priest by the name of John Newton, a military deserter, a former, a former military deserter, a former slave trader, who experience this reality of amazing grace, the indiscriminate existential power of the gospel, the paradox, the preciousness, that the promise, the permanence of the message of Jesus Christ. This is why this, this, this hymn, this is why slaves could sing it generation after generation in the hardest, the most inhumane of circumstances. This is why battle-hardened soldiers will have a tear come down their face when they recite it. This is why our society can't get enough of this hymn, because God's grace is the only hope for this world, this world that is barely hanging on. I mean, it's like held together by shoestring and duct tape, it seems, and that at any moment it could collapse. And yeah, obviously, I'm referring to the world around us, but the reason this hymn has so much traction is because it describes the same for the world within us, that only the gospel, that is the amazing message of God's grace, can give us the consistent, the coherent meaning, the unifying meaning and purpose of our lives, the purpose and strength we need because it doesn't depend on us or the world around us. This is the hope of the gospel. But the question we have to ask is: this amazing hymn, how can we know that what Newton wrote was true? How can we hope that that this is a reality, that this is real? How can we dare believe the promises of God? Well, we can because we have Mark chapter 15. That's what this chapter is about. We see here in Mark chapter 15, turn there, if, you, if you're using a pew Bible, page 800, we see in this chapter grace enacted, grace secured, grace proclaimed. That's what Mark 15 is about, this amazing grace. And if you have not made this grace the engine of your life, And many Christians can go along being a Christian and not make grace the engine of their life. It might be performance, it might be uh, attendance, it might be whatever it might be, some external metric, but it is not the amazing grace of the gospel. I hope and pray that today it will be the engine of your life because that's the only thing that can lead to a life of worship and grace and, 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 and the expression of what makes Christianity so powerful without which you get religious, religiosity, suffocation, pride. So, I hope we understand grace. Now, uh, Mark chapter 15 is rather a long chapter. So, what I'm going to do this week is I'm actually going to read three vignettes Three sections that show us grace enacted, grace secured, and grace proclaimed. And so, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, we will read portions of it. So, with that as an introduction, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? We're going to start in Mark chapter 15 at verse 6, grace enacted, Mark 15, 6, now at the feast... But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again, again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. Verse 14, And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Skip down to verse 22. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was a third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Skip down to verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama, Lama Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Skip down to verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage this morning in verse 6, opens with Jesus at yet again another trial, this time being tried by Rome. See, the Romans had taken away from the Jews the right of execution, so the Jewish people could not execute a criminal of their own, but needed to take them to the Roman governor, in this case Pontius Pilate, to get the authority and have Rome execute a criminal. And so before that could happen, by Roman law, there needed to be some kind of trial at least. If you're familiar with this scene, it's often easy to frame Pilate in a completely negative light. After all, if you read the Gospels, according to Luke 22, 14, Pilate knew very well that Christ, that Jesus, was an innocent man. In Mark 27, 19, Pilate's own wife came to Pilate and said, have nothing to do with this man. I have seen visions. I've had dreams. He's a righteous and innocent man. And in Mark 15, 10, it even says that that Pilate knew the reason that the chief chief priests had brought Jesus to him because they were envious of him. He even tried to, to get out of this difficult situation by appealing to, to a, a custom at the time, the privilegium paschal, the, the, the privilege of the Passover, in which one guilty person could be let free, We would, would be released. So, Pilate picked a scoundrel of a man named Barabbas who was guilty of murder. He thought this surely was an easy way out until it wasn't because then it backfired on him the crowds chose barabbas a guilty man was set free and an innocent man was condemned instead rather than uphold justice we see in mark 15:15 15, 15, pilate buckled wanting to satisfy the crowd and had jesus crucified now if you've heard this passage and if you've been a christian longer than a year no doubt you've heard at least one of these passages it's very easy to focus on Pilate, in fact, it's very easy to focus how everyone behaved in this situation, kind of a psychological profile, how did, how did Pilate behave, how did the disciples behave, how did the crowd behave, how did the, the religious leaders behave, and kind of get a, a realization of how maybe we should behave, and I think that can be appropriate. How many times has Christ been compromised because we want to satisfy the crowd in our own lives? So It's a legitimate question to ask. But I, that's not where I want to focus. I actually want to focus what I think is probably more, uh, more germane, at least to the gospel, than necessarily how everyone behaved, and that is Pilate still. Granted, Pilate is making all the wrong choices, but did you notice that Pilate is also asking the right questions? Why? What do you want me to do with Jesus? What evil has this man done? Why should he be crucified? Pilate Pilate might as well have been asking why should Jesus die and anyone else live? Why should Jesus die and Barabbas live? You see, Pilate is asking the great question of Christianity. Right here, we are seeing the heart of the Christian message it's substitution. It is substitution, the life of an innocent. Given for the life of the guilty, why should Jesus die and Barabbas live? For that matter, why should Jesus die and any one of us live? It's the same question. You see, when we see Barabbas, we say, Well, it, of course, this is shocking because Barabbas is an insurrectionist, he's a murderer. That's why, he, that, that, that's why this is shocking, but that's just the details, right? That's just kind of hair splitting. I mean, if imagine any one of us in that scenario, and judgment was being passed on why Jesus should die and you should live. I mean, what argument are you going to bring to the table? Well, I, I'll tell you why I should live and Jesus should die. That's about how it would go. You see, friends, in these 10 verses here, verses 6 through 10, you're seeing grace enacted. Barabbas does not deserve this grace. He doesn't deserve to live. Now, you might easily say, but yeah, but th- the reason it's shocking is because he's a murderer. He doesn't deserve it. But we all know very quickly in this thought experiment that neither do any one of us. I mean, what could we possibly bring to the table that would make this exchange any more reasonable sounding? Right? I mean, t- to us it seems so obvious because Barabbas' crimes are so obvious and ours are much more subtle, but they're still crimes. You see, at the end of the day, friends, there's nothing different really fundamentally between Barabbas and me. Now, the difference is, it's, it's just a really a matter of degree, but it's the same kind of thing, same kind of thing you're guilty of, a violator of God's law. Now, Barabbas just does it differently than most of us do, but it's just a matter of degree, but the same kind of thing. I violate God's law all the time, and so did Barabbas. But by the way, friends, do not miss the fact that this is exactly, this is exactly the definition of grace, unmerited favor. If anyone deserved to be let free, that would not be grace, would it? What is that? That's called justice. And aren't we glad that God is a just God? As my wife always say, I always answer every question, yes and no. Yeah, I'm glad God's a just God. The problem is I'm not just, and if He's a just God and that's all I get, I'm doomed, and so are you. I want a God that is just and merciful but how can a God be just and merciful when we're talking about crimes of this degree? Well, that's what we're talking about. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But you see, what we're seeing here in Barabbas in these first 10 verses is grace being enacted. We're getting a preview of what is about to happen. An innocent man giving his life for the guilty. And this is what the gospel is. This is how God has always had it planned. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Later on, Paul says, "So, so if we were sinners and Christ died for us, how much more now that we've been reconciled to Him, will He love us? Friends, this is a really important point. I remember so clearly being, beating myself up because I wasn't I was still struggling with certain kind of characteristic sins, not seeing the fruit that I wanted to and feeling really bad. Now, on one hand, that's really good, right? But I remember a friend who took me to this passage and started trying to encourage me. And you know what he said? It, it wasn't really encouraging, but it really was. This is what he said as he took me to Romans 5a. Hey, Rick, you just need to know something and I hope this comforts you, but you just need to know that God took into account your stupidity when He called you to Himself. (laughs) And there it is. And and then now Charles Spurgeon says it another way, says it in a much nicer way. He's a preacher from London in the 1800s. He says, I must believe in the doctrine of election that God chose me before I was born, because He certainly wouldn't have chosen me after I was born. But that's very true. God took into account all the stupidity, all your stupidity, my stupidity. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are seeing grace enacted right here. That's what Mark is recording. But how is that possible? How can God be just and merciful? And that's what uh, Mark wants to get into here as he's talking about grace enacted in this picture of Barabbas. But the real thing is grace secured as we now look to the crucifixion And notice Mark does not, he doesn't spend a moment talking about the gore, the humiliation, the pain, the horror that surrounds crucifixion. He knows very well that his audience is very familiar with it. He spends no time discussing it. What he does record, most of what we've already read, but what he does record is very interesting. Let me read to you verse 29 to 30 because we didn't read this earlier. And those who passed by derided him. So, they're, they're rolling dice to take his clothes, the only thing he owns, and those who pass by, verse 29, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down for the cross. So, also the chief priests and the scribes and others mocked him to one another, saying he saved others but he cannot save himself. Now, our modern curiosity is drawn to the process of crucifixion because it's so foreign to us, but Mark is drawn to the process of God's Word coming to pass. Now, he doesn't cite it here, but we know by what he's recording, he's certainly thinking of Psalm 22, one of the most messianic psalms there is. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of a joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. A few verses later in the same chapter, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's exactly what took place. Then at about noon, we read, darkness comes. The the gospel writers, if you're you're an artist, you probably pick up on this kind of stuff naturally. Um, Visual artists have these things they call values, the way they, if you look at good paintings, the way they use light, particularly light and darkness. Uh, If you read the gospels, particularly John, how whenever he wants to strike an ominous tone, he's talking about it being at night or it being dark. Uh, very brilliant use of these, these kind of contrasts, night and dark. And here at Jesus' death, even though it's noon, the height of the day, darkness comes. Now, some people have tried to explain this as a natural phenomenon. They said that this is probably a solar eclipse, but you, you can't have a solar eclipse uh, when you have a full moon like you would have here at Passover. And And a solar eclipse is a brief phenomenon, isn't it? This one lasts three hours. Others, skeptics may say that probably what blocked it out was a severe sandstorm, which was relatively common in Palestine. But the problem with that is this is equally unlikely because, number one, there's no mention in any of the gospel writers of a sandstorm or the chaos and panic that one of those sandstorms would bring about. And secondly, you wouldn't have a sandstorm in the wet season during springtime in Israel. So, so that w- couldn't have been the reality. What Mark is recording here, this darkness is a supernatural darkness. Uh, keep your finger in Mark. You can go with me to, to uh, Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Easy book to find, second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 10. Darkness is often a, a kind of, I don't want to say omen, but like a portent of God's judgment of, of the the. the 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 severity of what's coming. So, Exodus 10, I think is one of the first times we see it in such vividness. Verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Go back to Mark. We often read, remember in in our study of the minor prophets that we just got through doing this summer, how often darkness as well is a, a sign, a symbol, a portent of God's righteous indignation towards sin. It's almost as if nature itself does not want to see what's about to happen. When David taught us through the book of Amos, remember Amos chapter 8 verse 9, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Joel, another prophet, another minor prophet, chapter 2 verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Friends, what we're reading in Mark 15, God's judgment is, in fact, coming, and it's coming right upon Jesus, which is why in verse 34 He cries out, right, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In answer to the question Jesus asked, why have you forsaken me? We know the answer. He's forsaken because of you, because of me. He's forsaken for us. This is the great exchange. The judgment should have fallen on us, but instead it falls on Him. The darkness that comes is a darkness that swallows Jesus. As Isaiah, as Scott read to us, He was the one who made atonement for our iniquities. The judgment of God is coming against sin. And friends, by the way, this is not Orange County darkness, okay? So, if you're thinking in your mind, nighttime in Orange County, that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, we live by the high school, so there's always the the light pollution. There's always kind of light everywhere. This is what I call Wombian Cave Darkness. Wombian Caves are out in the bush in Australia. And several years ago I was working and helping a church plant out there, and we wanted to do a weekend trip to the bush, the outback. We went to an area called the Wombian Caves. and, And it was getting kind of dusk, but we thought, let's go check out the caves. And we went into the caves not very far, turned off all the lights it's like darkness so thick you breathe it in has any everyone ever felt that darkness like you can't see your hand you can't see people around you and and the, i mean we had flashlights we knew we were safe but i could not imagine abiding in that kind of darkness very long it, it's i've seen some of your heads nodding you know it's it's like this disorienting isn't it we think we have a good sense of direction, but it's so dependent upon life, uh, light, when you're in absolute darkness, you, you start getting disoriented, and then if you're really quiet, it gets to be really isolating. It's a surreal experience. If, if you've never had it, it's surreal. Now, friends, if physical darkness is bad, spiritual darkness is worse. And in physical darkness, you get physical darkness when you turn your back on the sun or you, when you shut it out, and in spiritual darkness, it's the same. It's when you turn your back on God and you shut Him out. Spiritual darkness is the result. It's, it's friends, it's no coincidence that in 1 John 1, 5, it says that God is light. Psalm eighty four eleven says the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Many verses in the Bible compare God to light and the sun. Light is always a picture of truth. The sun is a picture of life and warmth and sustenance. When, so, what, what the Bible says is that when you orbit your lives, when you order your lives around God, you are connecting yourself to all that is light and life and vitality and truth, right? When God is a, the, the kind of star that your life orbits around, but, but when you turn away from God and you, you let your life begin to orbit around something else, your, your career, your hobbies, your, your schooling, your family you're headed towards spiritual darkness. Now, it may look to you as a source of light and life, but you are moving towards darkness. Now, you might think that it's light and life because honestly, these things are relative goods, aren't they, especially family? What's wrong with orbiting our lives around family? But friends, when those things become what we orbit around rather than the true source of light and life, We are moving away from God, and by definition, you are moving in the wrong direction, right? And it's hard to realize this because the darker it gets, the more you have no idea of what's going on. And it's easy to think that these things is where we draw light and life, because like the moon that reflects the light of the sun, these things do give us a measure of life and light. But like the moon that does not generate its own light, these things cannot generate their own light and life of themselves. And like physical darkness isolates us, spiritual darkness does the same because we're so wrapped up in the things that we're living for that we become scared, we become anxious, we become angry or insecure or prideful or defensive because we don't want anything to happen to those things. We don't want to have to lose them, lose it. We're afraid that they'll change or if they're successful, we get prideful. It's, we're just a jumble of nerves. Friends, what in the world will happen if your family is your source of light and life and they do not turn out the way you want it, if, if your career is your source of light and life and the company downsizes, if your youth is your source of light and life, and you know how age and gravity destroys that, if your reputation, your name is your source of light and life, You will compromise truth when doing what's right collides with doing what's popular. Friends, anything we latch on to for life and light that is not God Himself will inevitably lead us further into darkness and isolation because everything fades, everything passes, everything dies. According to the Bible, we were all headed there. This is the reality. I take you back again. You don't have to go there, but Genesis chapter 1, chapter 1, chapter 3. Humanity was made to orbit around God and His glory. We're image bearers, but because of our sin, we turned away from that, turned our backs to Him towards darkness. But since we're still image bearers, we are going to orbit around something. We were all on the trajectory towards death, but Jesus stopped that. He intervened and took that darkness into Himself. He took being forsaken by God, by all that is light and life, so that you could be forever connected to it. The question is, this is what John Newton was singing about, this is the amazing grace, how do we know it worked? And that's where we have grace proclaimed. We have two proofs. We see it right here in our chapter 15. So, grace enacted. We saw a picture of that in Barabbas being free, the guilty free, the innocent punished. We know how it happened because grace was secured by Jesus' death on the cross. Do we know it worked? Yes, we do. And two evidences tell us in Mark 15, the curtain which was torn and the confession of the centurion. First was the curtain. For, so, for those of you who may not know uh, temple architecture, the temple in, within it, the, there's two main compartments. There was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place that was separated by this curtain. The most holy place, only one man, the high priest, could go into one day of the year, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to make atonement for the sins of the people. If the temple structure was the heart of the Jewish life because it symbolized the presence of God, the holiest of holies was the heart of the of the temple itself, and there was a curtain that separated everyone from this holiest of holies. In Mark chapter 15, I think it's verse 37, when you look at it, verse 38, says that the moment Jesus died, by the way, don't think your curtain's at home, right? Don't think Ikea curtains. This curtain was about a a hand-breadth thick. So, this is more like a fabric wall that, that we know that took about 300 priests to kind of have to finagle, clean, and set up, right? That's how huge this curtain was. And Mark 15, 38 says, at the moment Jesus died, it was torn from top to bottom. The message, the way's open. There is nothing. The way to light and life, God's presence, is no longer hidden behind a curtain, something that only one man one time a year could go. That the way is wide open. It's a reality for all because God's judgment against sin, that sin that Isaiah 52 two says that is, separates us from God, God has removed it because it has been judged in Jesus Christ. Jesus faced the darkness of God's judgment so we could experience the light of His presence And that's what we see, and the curtains torn open as evidence of that. For all who believe that they are Barabbas, that they are guilty, and they need a great exchange, and they trust that Jesus can be that great exchange, the way is open. How do we know it's that grace is there? It's true. It's been proclaimed to us. The veil was torn to. But secondly and lastly, immediately, immediately, as if to make the point even clearer, the first person in the gospel of Mark looks at Jesus and says, truly, this man was a son of God. The very first verse of Mark's gospel proclaims it from God Himself. This is the Son of God, and no human being in the gospel, nobody, not even the disciples, connect the dots. Ironically, who connects the dots? A battle-hardened centurion who's a Gentile looks up, by the way Jesus died, a man who has seen many deaths, no doubt a man who has killed many people. Witnessing the way this man died said, this is the Son of God. It's as if Mark is making the point. It's as if Mark's making the point that you cannot understand who God is until you see Him in light of the cross. That until you see the cross, you do not understand the full character of God's love and His holiness. If you just see God's holiness, His wrath, and righteousness, you'll only see your relationship with God as an obligation and some impersonal duty to perform. If, on the other hand, you only see God in terms of His, His uh, forgiving and kind and merciful nature, you'll only see your relationship with God as merely an option and a personal choice to take or leave. But it's until you see at the cross that God is both a God of holiness and forgiveness, wrath and kindness, righteousness and mercy, that you understand the character of God. And so Mark does not allow anyone to confess that Jesus is the Son of God until Jesus dies on the cross. So the picture is complete. This is what that verse 2 of Amazing Grace is singing. Was grace that taught my heart to fear? It is God's grace that opens my eyes to make me realize I'm Barabbas. I'm the whore. I'm the leper. I'm the one that deserves to die. I'm the diseased one. I'm the impure one. Man, I had it all wrong. And you're the one that I stand judged before. It was grace that opened my eyes. So now I know what I really need to fear, but, and grace, my fears relieved, but because now I see you for who you are. I actually don't have to fear anything anymore. Friends, we have seen in Mark 15, this grace enacted, secured, and proclaimed all that remains, for is it to be believed and obeyed and made the engine of our lives. I pray that we will be a church that daily strives to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for amazing grace. Not one of us here deserve it. And you give it, and you give it abundantly. Father, I pray that none of us leaves this room without wrestling with the reality of what that means for our lives. That grace humbles us and fills us with confidence simultaneously, humbles us because it tells us who we are and fills us with confidence because in light of that, you still love us. And Father, we are grateful. May we be a people who sing of grace, who live from that, And we thank you for this in Jesus' name who secured it for us. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.